0: GSCI helps logistics providers, banks, and shippers to track air, ocean, and road freight rates. Book a free demo at www.gsci.ti-insight.com. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of TI Talks Supply Chains. I'm your host, Kirsty Adams. The gap between China and India is closing, but can anyone really compete with China? In this final episode of our Made In policies series, we'll be looking at India's Made In programme. We'll also look at what's going on in China, and we also discuss the fact that risk is far more important than cost for supply chains these days. There's a lot to cover, so we'll be diving straight into our interview with TI Insight founder and author, Professor John Manners-Bell. I'm going to take you to the point of the interview where John is explaining the impact of the ban that India put on the import of laptops and PCs last year.
1: Yes, this was back in August. Uh, Since that time, I think because of the huge amount of pressure that has been placed on the Indian government, that ban has been sort of kicked down the road for another year. But the reason why it's been the case is that the Indian government wants to encourage local domestic uh, manufacturing growth in this particular high-tech sector. And so although the ban hasn't come into being just yet, it it certainly will do, and companies, uh, many global manufacturers who are importing these particular high-tech goods into India will have a year in which to actually develop their own production within India and their own supply chain a year doesn't actually sound very long so we'll have to see how that one works out and this sort of goes on from previous um, policies which relating to smartphones and particularly we'll probably go on to discuss the impact which this had for apple which was came in a couple of years ago and again the the reason behind the ban on imports or the tariffs being placed on on imports in these sort of goods was to try and develop a manufacturing ecosystem within India. And it's been quite successful in terms of the smartphones, because we are seeing that uh, you know, Apple has uh, decided to base more uh, of its production for its latest smartphones uh, in India. So it, it, in that respect, you can't argue, argue with it. It has been successful, at least in the short term.
0: Modi's Made in India programme, is it working?
1: Well, it really depends on how you define a positive, successful outcome. In terms of actually developing its own domestic high-tech sector, I think you can probably say, yes, it is. It is certainly starting to work. When you're manufacturing a high-tech good In a particular market it's not just a case of assembling that particular product or at least that's not what the Indian government wants they want all the the components or as many components as possible to be also manufactured and that that means you can create that particular ecosystem alongside having suppliers there you need the relevant uh, information communications technology infrastructure you need the energy infrastructure the logistics infrastructure as well and transport which is hugely important. Important, uh, So you need all these components put into place. It's certainly starting to work in terms of, of smartphones. And the idea is that it will be extended into laptops and computers. However, it also means that these particular products will become more expensive for consumers. And uh, that was one of the big fears of this ban on the imports of, of goods, particularly from China, because that's where most laptops in the world are, are produced. So they are much cheaper. But now pure cost is only one element of the decision-making process. And in terms of politicians, when obviously India is a big rival to China or vice versa within the, the region on the geopolitical basis then India does not want to be dependent on on China for imports of any high-tech goods. It wants to develop its own industry. It wants to become a powerhouse to rival China in the region, which is why it has taken such sort of dramatic steps to try and develop its own industry, not only by placing barriers around the country, around its industry, but also by subsidising its own industry through its making India policies.
0: John, what do you think India could do differently to upgrade its sort of logistics offering and do what China isn't doing?
1: In many respects, India just needs to be different from China because a lot of Western uh, manufacturers are very wary of sourcing goods from China now, particularly in the, in the high tech sector, because of all the, the bans which have been placed on exports of advanced technology into China. China obviously is also placing its own bans uh, and has its own regulations on uh, US manufacturers, for example. And so, what we're seeing is the development of dual supply chains, or which goes sort of the same sort of thing as friend sourcing or ally shoring, whatever you want to call it. So we're seeing a bifurcation of supply chains, and uh, India is a viable alternative, or could become a viable alternative to China. It's got the the workforce, it's got the the IT know-how. It just hasn't got the, the scale in terms of its manufacturing at the moment, and it hasn't got the really good transport infrastructure, which China has in terms of ports and roads and, and rail. It's, it's still creaking it's still outdated uh, not only that is it's got the processes involved are very slow in terms of sort of trade and customers and so on so it's nowhere near as slick as China is and which means that it, it is far more costly in, in terms of exporting and importing which is one area that it real, really needs to have to focus on if it's going to rival China, But there is a demand for a big manufacturing location in Asia, which is not China. And although India is certainly not aligned with the West, it is a non-aligned country and it has its own geopolitical outlook and, uh, you know, in terms of trading, for example, with with Russia in terms of oil. And certainly not wanting to be seen a, as a puppet of the West in any shape or form, at the same time as this, it, it is certainly not seen as an adversary by the West, and which means it, it would be an ideal location for manufacturing.
0: And for supply chain strategists, I imagine. So it sounds like there's lots of work to be done in terms of strategy, infrastructure. So probably quite interesting place to be working at the moment.
1: Yeah, I would think so. Absolutely. And again, you know, supply chain is on the top of everybody's list at the moment which makes you know, India very interesting. There are markets in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, with the amount of uh, money which it's investing in, in its uh, logistics infrastructure, and it also its manufacturing, You know whether it's chemical or whether it's in Neom, this huge new city which is being built at the moment. There are opportunities for logistics consultants, global logistics companies as well.
0: So John, who is not manufacturing in China at the moment?
1: Well, I think there. I mean, just about every sector has been impacted by, for one reason or another, uh, largely by regulations, legislation, but also from uh, building in uh, elements of, of risk into their su- supply chain strategies now, risk mitigation strategies. Um, so, I, I think across the board, we're seeing uh, manufacturers uh, move their production. Or move some of their suppliers out of China. If you look at, uh, for example, the the fashion textile industry, we're seeing companies like um, Puma and Adidas uh, very much look to manufacturing their products in other parts of Southeast Asia. So uh, Cambodia, Indonesia, Vietnam and Bangladesh are, are very very much um, some of the key markets now for these these countries uh, companies, and one of the the, the real reasons for, for that has been the um, uh, the big controversy over the last few years about China's treatment of the uh, Uyghur community in the Xinjiang uh, province. Um, so uh, there was a big uh, consumer backlash in in parts of the west. Um, there were regulations, legislation being put in place in, in the US, uh, which now means that there's a ban on any goods coming into the US, which have been in any shape or form touched that Xinjiang province. Uh, at the same time as that, it has been uh, really bad news all around for these companies, because uh, when they started moving their production out of China, the, the, the Chinese government sort of whipped up ill-feeling against these um, these companies and there was a consumer backlash in China as well. So that, that really impacted on, on their production. Um, but the upshot of this is that uh, many com- com- companies in the textile fashion uh, sportswear sectors are now manufacturing in locations outs- outside China. Uh, if you look at the consumer electronics sector then we're we're seeing uh, again new regulations and um, advanced technology export bans on these uh, sectors which means that now companies are now moving their their either their production or their suppliers uh, out of of china because uh, they are not allowed to share this sort of technology with with, with their suppliers in that particular country. Uh, the flip side is that China is also putting regulations on, on what there can be or cannot be manufacturers, and so it's becoming a, a real minefield for these for these companies. And the best way that they have to, to deal with it is to look at, at manufacturing in in other parts of, of Asia, where they still uh, have the, the the low cost labor forces. Um, and but also there there is that still that that know-how as well. And we're seeing. Uh, country, not emerging markets, developed countries like uh, South Korea are also benefiting from that and Japan as well. And they are backing this up with big subsidies to encourage their own manufacturers to reshore production. Mazda is a very good example in the automotive sector throughout COVID, when there was particular issues there in terms of production in China, that was their main driving force behind removing their production from China and reshoring it to Japan. And at the same time as that, encouraging all their supply chain, all their suppliers to to move out of of China as well. So a whole host of different regulatory, legislative, consumer issues, risk in all its shape and forms is really driving uh, companies manufacturing supply chain strategies. And uh, that's benefiting a lot of countries in Southeast Asia. It's also benefiting US in terms of reshoring to that that country. In terms of near-shoring, Mexico, where I've um, very recently got back from, has been a huge beneficiary of this particular trend. And we're seeing that uh, volumes are absolutely booming on the cross-border routes because of the relocation of manufacturing to Mexico, from China, and that in that case it was uh, driven by the congestion which was seen on the West Coast ports of uh, of the U.S. at the end of COVID due to the stimulus package which was put in, in place by the Biden administration, which uh, overwhelmed, which led to consumer growth and consumer spend, which overwhelmed the shipping and the ports industry and the intermodal industry and the trucking. And all parts were just overwhelmed by the, the huge volumes. And so consequently, now uh, manufacturers in the US are, are looking to the longer term and saying, well, we, we want a, a, a land-based solution where we can move goods in a, in a few days from our suppliers or our production location into the US market.
0: And labor's much cheaper in Mexico. Is that right than China?
1: That's right. It is, yes, many times lower than it is in China. So it has a a real opportunity uh, if the Mexican government is able to get in place the fundamentals uh, in terms of logistics and IT and energy supplies regulatory framework, long-term investment, which, again, it's decades behind China in that respect. But if it's able to get its act together, then there are huge opportunities for the Mexican economy.
0: So which country, John, if it wasn't dependent on size or capability at the moment, which country's infrastructure would you say best competes with China?
1: That's an interesting question, because I don't think any country can compete with China the massive the billions which has been invested by the chinese government over largely over the last 20 25 years in terms of port infrastructure roads rail airports you know they are light years ahead of any other emerging market for example india which is would like to see itself as a as a challenger to china in asia there is really very little comparison between the two in terms of its logistics capabilities and its transport infrastructure. Even countries such as Vietnam, they've been very successful in attracting companies away from from China, but now its infrastructure as well is being overwhelmed because it hasn't been able to keep up the pace. So I think it's not going to happen immediately. There is no one country which is going to be able to step up and say, yeah, okay, we can we can take as much manufacturing as you can give us. It's going to be problematic and not just in terms of the the hard infrastructure as well. But over the years, the shipping industry, for example, has developed based on huge ships moving goods from huge ports, largely in China, also Singapore and Hong Kong but uh, largely in China to the West Coast ports of the U.S. or to Europe. And uh, so the whole industry has developed based around supporting the growth of Chinese uh, exports to the West. That's going to have to change as well, as we see many of these smaller uh, markets grow, such as Vietnam and Indonesia. So that will mean that there will be uh, has to be a change in structure as well. Maybe smaller ships, more frequent, uh, more calls to be able to deal with this changing the changing structures of supply chains.
0: And John, what does China have to say about all this?
1: Well, what's happening within China has been, uh, and this probably occurred firstly really back in 2008, 2009, in the terms of the Great Recession, when Western export markets dried up because the West uh, ran out of money uh, ran out of finance and there was a real focus on Chinese uh, domestic investment. And that, that was a, so that was a big, big change in, in focus from export into the domestic infrastructure. Uh, and that has really continued over the last 10 years. At the same time as that, it's been developing its own, it has been called a sort of Sinosphere. So its own Chinese sphere of influence through its Belt and Road Initiative, where it has made huge loans to many emerging markets throughout Asia, Many in Latin America, many in Africa, to create its own supply chains, largely to move uh, raw materials from, say, Latin America or Africa back into. China, where they can be processed and manufactured, but also then they also become very willing export markets for Chinese-made goods as well. So China has been developing its own supply chains and its own networks uh, very successfully. It's invested maybe a, a trillion dollars in building out infrastructure in other parts of the world in terms of the loans that it's made to these countries and the rest of the world. So it's created its own economic ecosystem, but it's also created its a uh, political power base as, as well, where it has huge influence throughout the many of these parts of the world, many of these emerging markets, which are now more focused on China than they are on the West. And so we're seeing, uh, again, the world is, is fragmenting in, in terms of supply chains, this whole idea of globalization, where every business can trade equally with any other country or business anywhere in the world, that's long gone now. As the industry, economy, the world is fragmenting along political lines, and those political lines are being translated into trade barriers, which are now having a real influence on the development of supply chains.
0: John, is globalization dead?
1: Well, as I put in my book, if it's not dead, it's certainly on life support. There are always going to be products which are manufactured in, in China, and moved to the rest of the world. Nobody's saying that that's not going to happen, but that's not the same as globalization. It goes back to my point that uh, globalization—another way of putting it—the world is flat, which means that you know there are no barriers, borders. There's no no mountainous regions in terms of trade. It, everything should be as easy to trade with india china as it is for a uk company to trade with with france and same no regulations uh, no cultural issues etc cetera, etc cetera. but obviously that's, that's hopelessly naive and now that that's really been shown to be the case so we are seeing this fragmentation we will be trading more with like-minded countries which share uh, the same sort of political and social uh, imperatives and there are other countries around the world which have different views on these same issues, these important issues, than we do. And they will build their own hegemonies, they will build their own networks, and they will focus trade between themselves. And. Uh, there are so many new barriers being created, whether those are environmental, whether they relate to the flows of data. Now, I mean, that's a, that's a huge uh, issue now of creation of data islands, you know, blocks around the, the EU, uh, around the US, India, Saudi Arabia, China. They're all developing their own regulations on, on which data can cross-border, which, given that the lifeblood of supply chains is data... That's going to again have a real impact on the on the flows of goods. You know, from from data perspective, from a risk perspective, from the, just how difficult it is for companies to now uh, source goods on the other side of the world, taking into case into the political, economic, social, technological, regulatory, uh, environmental, ethical perspective then it's inevitable that manufacturers will be looking to source goods more locally, either within the country in which they're based or from countries which are close at hand geographically or uh, which actually share the same outlook as they do.
0: I was going to finish up, John, with asking you, you know, what should supply chain strategists be thinking about right now? What should they be focusing on? And I think you've sort of flagged up a few there, well, at least a few, you know, data, risk, environmental. If you would speak to a supply chain strategist today from any part of the world, what would you tell them to focus on?
1: Well, uh, the first thing I'd say that that cost is no longer the major driving factor behind supply chain decisions. That really is clear. You know, everything is about resilience. It's about risk mitigation. It's about looking at the longer term picture and creating a robust supply chains which can deal with all these different risks, these political risks, economic risks, and all the other ones which I've mentioned, that has to be hardwired into your supply chain strategy. Long gone are the days of offshoring decisions being based on low cost labor forces. It is still a factor which has to be taken into account, obviously, but it's not the only factor. You know, it's not just the scale of the workforce, Uh, it's not just the cost of a workforce, it's all those other factors which I've mentioned and been talking about that supply chain strategists need to take into account.
0: It must be really interesting to be a supply chain strategist in India right now. If you are involved in developing India's logistics infrastructure, its energy infrastructure, various manufacturing ecosystems, ports, rail, there's a lot to do then we'd love to hear about your experience so please do drop me an email kadams at ti-insight.com in the meantime please sign up to our logistics briefing newsletter which is always full of fantastic stories from the ti team the link is in the show notes that's it from me for now goodbye